Welcome to this podcast, recorded live at the Junction Church, Aberdeen. We pray this message inspires and encourages you. For more information, you can connect with us at www.thejunctionchurch.com. So uh, we are kind of bringing to a close uh, over the next sort of this week and, and probably a bit of next week, uh, uh, the mighty Phil Bretherton is going to be preaching next week and that's going to be amazing. I am looking forward to that. But uh, you've got me this week uh, and, and we are drawing close. It's been sort of three, four months that we have been doing the... Uh, well, that does not sound good. Let's see. I'll move it to the other side of me. That'll work. That's how radio signals work. <laughs> Maybe they do. Uh, <laughs> But uh, we've been looking at this Born for More uh, series. Born for More is, is sort of what uh, our movement of INC, it's, it's what we think, it's, it's, it's our sort of, uh, I, I always want to say mantra, and mantra is absolutely the last word I should probably use in that. <laughs> but it's like it's our motto, it's our tagline, it's, 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 it's what we really sort of believe for the season and what we believe for the movement, Born for More. And I was thinking, and, and the whole series, he's been kind of looking at that and looking at different aspects of that uh, and at the moment, we're, we're just finishing up on, on the topic and uh, an idea of mantle, the mantle that sits on the church. And I was thinking about born for more, just the terminology, born for more. And there's, there's actually something really subtle in that wordage, in, in, in that sort of collection of words. And that it implies, the words born for more imply that we were born with an expectation below what God actually had intended for us. That, that we live our lives blinded, deceived by something that would not allow us to fully appreciate the fullness and the magnificence of what God has intended for our lives and our collection of lives together. That there is, there is actually something where we have been deceived into believing that we are far less than what God actually intended us for. So I want to read to you from uh, just one, uh, well, Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. God said, let us make mankind in any image, the image of like just anything that's looking around. No, in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. He's like said that three times. Like he's really emphasizing the point that you are created in my image. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number Fill the earth and subdue it. That is quite a grand mandate that he placed upon mankind. Like he really held nothing back in that. See, in the whole earth, you look at the earth and, and, and as he created it, when it was sort of everything was sort of all the rivers were flowing in the right direction and all the ice caps had the right amount of ice on them and uh, all that, you know, everything was in perfect equilibrium. And he said, mankind, this is for you. It's not a blank canvas, but I've given you a canvas with all of these materials, these raw materials over here and these, these herbs and these flowers over here and these animals over here and these vistas and landscapes over here and it is for you to subdue it, for you to create with it. Much in the same way that he created this wonder and beauty out of a void, he put that same 
power to create in mankind, in every single one of us, that we could look at the wilderness and that we could create beauty and we could create artistry out of the midst of that, 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 that we could innovate, that we could invent, that we could take this element over here and combine it with this fruit over here and we could join it all together in some process and create iPhones. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that that, 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 that that is the genius that God has placed within us, that, that we are called in, 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 in so many different ways to take the world that he created and for us to, 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 to make it and to invent with it and to create with it and to create something even greater, to, to extend and enlarge his kingdom. But there was a lie. In the Garden of Eden, when the devil tricked mankind, he lied to mankind, said, hey, no, 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 God's given you a lot of stuff, but he's telling you not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So clearly he doesn't want you to have everything. And there came this lie, this lie of inadequacy, this sense, this fear of inadequacy, this sense that we might not have it all, that, that, that there's something reduced, limited in us. Have you, ever, have you ever felt and reflected on the things that he's done in your life? I know I have, I have and they just sometimes seem particularly with regards to building the kingdom of God, almost inconsequential. They, that you feel like the contribution that you bring is, is too little. It's, it's ineffective. It's, it's insignificant even. That, that our lives are full of all of these little small things, these small actions, these small desires, all, all these little small things. And when you join them all together, it just it doesn't amount to anything of value, that we've not done with what we've been given all that we could have done because of distraction, because of carelessness, because of indifference, because being led astray. There's this sense and fear in all of us, I think, at times in our lives and often throughout our lives of feeling inadequate. The regret in growing older is that the possibilities that your life maybe once held appear to have uh, time and uh, opportunity slipped away and that they appear to have been squandered. Whilst at the same time, the angst of youth is that your potential will never be realized. Either that no one will notice it or that you'll just reach that fork in the road and you'll take the wrong road. You'll go the wrong way and you'll miss it all. And when you're in the prime of your life, like me, <laughs> you laughed. I can't believe you guys laughed. You're so rude. <laughs> you're probably thinking it's more prime rib than prime. <laughs> but when you're like, you worry about both things at the same time. You look at the opportunities like, oh man, I did not make the most of that. And yet at the same time, you think, well, what have I still to squander? You, you look at your wonderful, beautiful children and wonder, it's not quite confirmed yet how you've screwed them up and uh, and you wonder because it's still you know it's still in balance isn't it it's, what's the surprise a mohawk good could have been a lot worse there's a lot in what we do in life that we're motivated by that uh, is in trying to fulfill a sense of inadequacy that we are often 
bailing out instead of building up. That, that there's this shortfall, this gap, this deficit in our lives that we're somehow trying to correct of what we should have done or said we would do or often saw other people do. So much of that motivation, so much of that energy, so much of that angst is about trying to fulfill, trying to correct the shortfall, trying to fulfill the sense of inadequacy. And the tremendous and marvelous thing about the kingdom of God, of serving in the kingdom of God, is there is this eternal remedy for our lives in it. Because what you find is that personal accomplishment kind of takes, it's sort of not part of the equation. There's this contribution of our lives that is about building something that is already magnificent, of contributing towards something that is already glorious. And so personal accomplishment doesn't really factor into it. And what I want to talk about today is is the mantle. Because the mantle is what God bestowed the mantle upon the church, a mandate upon the church. and in that, for each church and every sort of church that's risen up, he's, he's determined within every church it's what the bearing and the potency of that message would be. For what direction. Every church has a slightly different sort of emphasis. It's, it's all the same message. It's all, but some churches just reach certain people and have a message that just resonates at a particular time. It's not a competition. It's just how God has created this varied and tiered and, and, and sort of multicolored church that that is able to reach every single sort of section of society, that is able to speak into every possible crisis and scenario that would arise. The church's mantle gives context. It gives meaning and purpose to the things that we do. Because it's not it's not like those it's it's not like the sporadic impulses that we have where we get a sense that oh I think I've fallen behind. I think I need to show up. I need to do something. These sporadic impulses to, to somehow try and correct the shortfall, to try and correct the inadequacy. But it's, it's never sort of consistent. It's never ongoing. It, it, it is momentary. It's temporary. It's for a time, and, but it's, it's sporadic. It's, it's not an agreement with the expression of God in this place. That's what the mantle is. It's an agreement. It sits over all of us, an agreement of how God expresses his love and redemption to this city, to the people of this city, and an agreement in ourselves that we stand under that, that we will stand together in a unified voice and sing that sound as a choir, all on the same helm sheet. And it changes us from being, it changes our our lives, the, the impact an influence of our lives to being like the raindrop, the raindrop that is temporary, the raindrop that drops once or drops twice or drops now and again. And it instead adds our lives to the mighty rolling wave of his kingdom, of something that has momentum, of something that has an enduring power to it. 
When I think of a wave, I, it brings me back to Elijah. Elijah, this whole series, we've kind of always found ourselves going back to Elijah and Elisha. There's something so pivotal and something I really want to explore in just a second. But when you think about Elijah's life, his life was wave-like. Because the, you, you look at it, and, and just to paraphrase, just to summarize, it starts with him going to the governing powers, to King Ahab, and saying, look, what, the way you are living, the way you are guiding this country, this nation, is wrong. It does not honor God. You dishonor him. You disrespect him. And because of that, God is going to send sign. He's going to put a drought over this nation for three years. And then when he says that, he surges forward, and then he, and then he retreats back, and he lives in a cave for three years. And then he, he rises up again and he comes forth and he surges once again and he stands up to the prophets of Baal. He takes them on and he demonstrates the power of God and he goes to the ruling powers once again and says, this is not this God of ours. The God of this nation is not happy with you. And then his life is threatened and he retreats again. He runs as fast as he can and he runs so far and so fast that he lies beneath a tree and prays for death. God rises him up again and brings him up again and pushes him forward once more and he surges again. And he brings that word of judgment. He brings that word of truth into that governing power and it changes. His life is about breaking through, of going forth and being pushed back and pushing forth again and constantly moving forward, but not without having to endure disappointment and defeat. I had this thought, it's like, he is a little, like it's, it's probably not right to say this, but there's almost in a sense, it's almost like wishy-washy. It doesn't matter, we're all wishy-washy. But it's like if Pastor Kevin, so uh, our, our lead Pastor Kevin and, and the family are away uh, on holiday right now, but uh, if they came back, if Pastor Kevin came back, said, oh, I've been speaking with my son Joe and tell me about Oban, it sounded really good. What a great cave scene up there. <laughs> It's a little busy around hibernation. <laughs> but I really think, I'm thinking of moving Cheryl and the kids up there and maybe spend about three years up in the cave <laughs> just thinking about stuff, working on my music, <laughs> jazz worship. <laughs> maybe start a church plant, you know. What would you? You'd have to call the church chill songs, right? <laughs> I spent way too long thinking. I probably spent way far too much time thinking about what this cave church would look like. <laughs> but that would be a little flaky, right? That'd be a little... But, but there are these ebbs and flows in life. There's these being pushed back and pressing forward. I want to read to you from Two Kings. This has been kind of the, the key text for this mantle series or sub-series that we've been doing. I'm just going to run through it really quickly because a lot of us have probably heard this before, but maybe some of us haven't. Uh, two Kings 2, starting in verse 8. Right at the end of Elijah's life, and he's brought on his, uh, he, he's got a, a guy who's come around his life, someone who is sort of son-like to him that, that he can pass on uh, what he's been doing, his life's work. He says, Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. 
Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. Elisha then picked up Elisha's cloak, Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord of the God of Elijah? He asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. So Elijah had a life, as I said, with ups and downs, with ebbs and flows. He had this cloak called a mantle. If, if you can actually imagine, it'd probably be like one of those sort of, um, like, a, like a Roman Catholic priest would wear that kind of goes from there all the way down to the ground. But it wouldn't have been all ornate like that. It wouldn't have been all pretty. It would have been, it'd have probably been pretty dirty. I, I mean, I don't know, because his life, he spent years living outside. It would have been worn. It would have being frayed at the edges. It would have borne all the sort of the marks uh, of the scrapes that he'd got into, of, of the hardness of his life, of the adventures he'd been on God with. It would, uh, it, it would have been something that bore the physical signs of the things that he'd endured. It would be like, in a sense, a bit of a, a diary of, of, of the things that he'd been through, of the, a representation of the memories of, of, of what God had brought him through and rescued him from. And it was very much like his own life. It would be a a representation of that because his life was an accumulation of all these different sort of endeavors and and things that his life had involved and he had been through and he'd broken through. And at the end of his life, he was looking to invest that. He was looking for it to be passed on. There was this, Elisha was raised up because there's this intersection of, fatherhood and sonship. Now, Elisha wasn't his son, but, but he was a man that he wanted to pass on. He wanted to pass on what his life had been able to accomplish, had been able to forge, where the, the ground that he had been able to take on behalf of God. He wanted that not, he wanted it to not be in vain. He knew that there was more to come, but his life was coming to an end. And I believe that what happens here, this transfer, actually establishes such a powerful, such a mighty principle that exists and is alive within the church today. Because Elijah's breakthrough was not to be in vain. It wasn't supposed to be this, his life was not supposed to be this isolated incident. That just happened. His life was to have an echo that would go beyond. It was to have a legacy. In the same way, Elisha had this desire. He didn't want to start from scratch. He saw this man and he wanted to somehow find a way of of taking that momentum that was upon his life. And being able to somehow harness it. That, That there's nothing worse than like starting a journey. There's nothing worse than starting a journey and driving 10 miles in the wrong direction. And then you have to turn back and after having driven 20 miles, you see where you started. 
He didn't want to start from scratch because he knew what this mighty man of God had accomplished, what he had, what he had made of his life. And the bit of that whole passage of scripture that's always kind of, I've not had an answer for until now, has been the double portion part of it. Why did he ask for a double portion? Because in my mind, in, in, in the, the hum, humanity of my own thought, it's like, like, it can't be that he was trying to outdo his predecessor. Like, it can't have been. It can't have been, uh, anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. It, it can't be that because he was righteous. And yet, that's how I've always sort of interpreted it. He's like, oh, whatever you've done, I want to be twice as good. It can't be that. So what was it? I believe it was that it wasn't about trying to outdo his predecessor. It was about trying to appropriate, trying to claim what this man had already achieved. About being able to claim what had already been won for the kingdom. That I think that he looked, Elisha looked and was like, this man, my My leader, my master, is about to leave. And then it's going to be just me. And I don't want to start from scratch. I, I don't want... Because if I start from scratch, if I am not able to harness this man's momentum, then it will take me my entire life just to get back to where he is now. Yeah. And I won't have brought the kingdom of God any further. Yeah. Powerful when you think of it. This man, this mighty man is about to depart. I don't want the kingdom of God to have to start. From, I don't want it to be a new beginning. Because this man, is he's already got that avenue into the government of, the, uh, government of our nation. I have to find a way. I have to be able to take it further so that the kingdom of God is advanced. And what I think he established in that is is that he was able to take a life's work and transfer it into a fresh vessel with all of the capacity to continue building, to inherit from the passing generation into the new one. Let me break that down into a, a little example. Has anyone heard of Theseus ship? I said it wrong because I have a speech impediment. Theseus ship. You heard of Theseus ship? You did philosophy. It's a, philosoph- it's a philosophical mental exercise. Theseus ship is, goes a bit like this. So imagine you had a wooden ship, a long boat, something like that, all built of wood, and you float it out into the middle of the ocean. That's the boat. You come alongside it. Let's say you have a barge. You come alongside it and you take a piece of wood, an identical piece of wood, to one of the planks on board the boat. You take the boat, you take the plank off the boat, put it on the barge, and you replace it with the brand new piece of wood. I think rationally all of us would agree that's still the same boat, right? That's still the same boat. If you change your curtain rail at home, you don't welcome people and go, hey, my new house. <laughs> right? <laughs> welcome, eh? It's pretty different. 
No, it changed one plank. It's the same boat. The captain, the crew, everyone considers that still the same boat. So what happens if you exchange one more? One at a time, one at a time, just changing out every single plank until every single plank has been changed. Well, if we're doing it all the way along, we've said after every plank it's the same boat. So it is the same boat. The guys on board it still think of it as the same boat, right? Here's where it twists your melon. What happens if you take all of those bits of wood you've taken off that boat and you take them back to port? You leave them there for 100 years. And then you put them back together again. And you put them back together again exactly how they had been taken apart. And then you put that boat back in the water and float it right next to the one that's already there. Which one is the original boat? Well, it's it's the one with all the original parts, right? Yeah, but we just said that the other one was still the original boat, right? Which one is the original boat? Why am I saying this? A healthy church is constantly drawing people in. Constantly. People move to the move to the city and you draw people and constantly people come in every week people come into church while at the same time you know people are simultaneously leaving they go home they get jobs elsewhere they get married they leave for other reasons and uh, and the church sort of over time the people in it change I, I th- I've been here now for I think 13 years there are Definitely people here who were here before I was here. But I actually think, looking around, most of you arrived after I was here. The church was still the same size or even bigger. So what does that say about... We, 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 I think we all agree, church is not a building. It's not the bricks and the mortar. It's the congregation. It's the people. But what does that mean when the people change? Right? That's what the mantle is all about. The mantle is the anchor. The mantle is the underlying principle. It is the core value. It's the foundation on which this church is built. The values that uphold this church. Those things don't change. They are the backbone that support the life of the church. The ever-expanding life of the church. The personality of the church may change over time, but the character remains the same when we remain faithful to the mantle. Amen? Every life, every move of God, every breakthrough, every casualty, every victory, every single one of them, every action is like a plank fixed next to one another. Built. That church is forming as God is, is building constantly, building something greater, building something bigger, building something with enough capacity to be able to go where he intends us to go, where he intended us to go at day one. Yep. Every day he builds and builds. And that is where the impact of all the small things comes in. All the small things that we worry about. It's all those small things that make it happen. You attend, you sing, you tithe, you serve, you share. Every one of those little actions, every single one of them, you just more planks, more planks. You're building and you're building. You're building and you're building to the point where your capacity as a church has doubled. 
Well, you now have two where the capacity has enlarged to such a degree that you are able to go forth into the territories that God intended you to. To bring a message with an emphasis to the places that he wants you to reach. How does, that, how does that look? How does that look in this church? Well, Pastor Kevin and Cheryl, tw- almost 25 years ago, 23 to 25 years ago, I can't remember the number, uh, they left the very south of England to come all the way to Scotland to plant a church. But they went to a place where no one knew them. No one knew them. They had no place to do this. And they had nobody to follow them. And yet today... We have a place. We have a place. We have people, a congregation, sitting on either side of us. We have leaders to follow. There is a church that has been built up. We come and we add our portion to what has already been laid down. Elisha's very first miracle was the same as Elijah's last miracle. There's something crazy about that. There's something remarkable. That's why when you think of Elijah and Elisha, we always mix up. Which one of the miracles did they do? Their names sound so similar. There's this continuity. There's a continuation. There's something that goes on and on. And it's really unique to them because I can't think of really any other prophets where that was the same. But there was this continuation, a mantle that overarched both of their lives. In the same way, he saw, Elisha saw the miracles that Elijah did and knew that that was possible. He had seen it done and he knew that it was possible. He knew that it was something that he could do because he'd seen another do it. Likewise, Kevin and Shell, they saw revival in their hometowns. They witnessed and discerned the move of the Holy Spirit during those revivals. They witnessed churches rising up and thriving. They saw people stepping out in faith. They had seen it and knew that it could be done. They'd seen the impossible part and people walk through it. Not the same. Elijah and Elisha, they both crossed the river, but they crossed it from opposite sides. When Elisha stood on that bank, it was a different bank. It was the opposite bank than Elijah had stood on. So it would have looked different. It would have looked backwards. But he knew that God would move. He knew that God could move and separate those waters that he could walk through. And so, when you are in a room and you look across it and there are people on the other side of it that you just know in your heart, know in your spirit that you have to reach you wonder how we can call back we can remember we can rely upon Elijah walked across the river Jesus walked on water Kevin and Cheryl traveled the whole length of the country so surely God will be with us as we walk across a room amen he will be with us Because we aren't just doing it willy-nilly. We're not just doing it for our own glory. We're doing it because we stand together 
all knitted together in a house with a calling. Thanks for joining with us. For more information about events, service times and how to connect with us, visit www.thejunctionchurch.com.